1951, cancer cells were taken from a young woman. And these cancer cells were remarkable because they were the first human cells that could be grown indefinitely in a lab. We know them today as the HeLa line. HeLa, named after Henrietta Lacks. And those cells have been just revolutionary in what they've done for medicine. From developing the polio vaccination to our studies on cancer, and we even study them for aging because the HeLa line is immortal. After 70 years, they show no signs of aging because every single time they divide, they reset the clock back to zero. And the question is, how did they do that? Of course, it makes sense to study human cells to understand cancer and aging. But how about a lobster? Did you know that we could study lobsters to learn about aging? I know it sounds far-fetched, doesn't it? But a 75 or 100-year-old lobster is bigger than a 20-year-old lobster. But physiologically speaking, a 100-year-old lobster is almost identical to a 20-year-old lobster. Just difference in size. That means there's something we can learn about aging from lobsters. Oh, wait. I have another one for you. Did you know that you could take a gene from a human and put it in almost any other organism on this planet? A dog, a mouse, a fruit fly, or even the most distantly related thing you can think about, a bacteria. That's right. You can take a gene from a human, put in a bacteria, and that bacteria will express that gene. And it will be the same protein. So if it's a gene-coding protein, it's going to make the same protein. In fact, everything will make the same protein. Why is that? And lastly, okay, last thing I'm going to present to you here. The world is teeming with life. Not only is it teeming with life, there's incredible diversity in our world. How did we get all of that diversity? Where did it come from? And in fact, every species we see today, all the two or, I don't know, 10 million species out there, represents only 2% of all the species that have ever lived. I know, like 98% of all life has gone extinct. But that doesn't matter. That just tells you that there's been a lot of diversity on this planet. And then how did life get to be so diverse? Well, the answer to all of these things, from studying immortality in cancer cells to what we can learn about aging from a lobster or why something is different from us as a bacteria can read our genes to understanding the diversity of life comes down to understanding how genes work. So in this episode of Tom SciCast, the part of the universe that we are going to explore are our genes. Now, understanding how our genes work, I mean, you could teach an entire class. You could take an entire degree on that. But for our purposes, we're just going to introduce it. And I'm going to focus on three different things that will help answer our questions that we just talked about. How do our genes replicate? How do genes store the information? We call that the genetic code. So how do genes store information? And then lastly, 
Where does genetic variation come from? Well, you're already thinking mutations. So let's get started. This is Tom Sycast. Let's explore the universe. And let's start with DNA replication. And by the end of this, we're going to shed some light on how certain cancer cell lines could be immortal. And that thing about lobsters and aging too. Now, before I dive in here, I just want to say that I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of DNA replication in terms of learning all the various proteins involved. There's a lot. I mean, just to name a few, there's helicases, primases, ligases, single-strand binding proteins, DNA polymerase 1, DNA polymerase 2, and let's not forget Okazaki fragments either. You get the point here. My goal here is not to do that, but to give an overview of how DNA replication works so that you can understand something like why a cell line is immortal. Let's get started. Think about it this way. There are more than 3 billion base pairs of DNA inside of every one of our 20 trillion cells. I mean, let's think about it this way. You have about six feet of DNA tightly folded and packaged into every single nucleus in every single cell. Now, additionally, they store a lot of information. I mean, the information stored in each of your cells would fill approximately 7,000 textbooks. Now, even more amazing is that the proteins inside the nucleus, they can copy all of the DNA inside of a cell within a few hours. I mean, could you imagine photocopying every book in your school's library within a few hours? And then as an adult, the epithelial cells, the skin cells lining your body, they do this every day of our lives. One of the main points of DNA replication is that it's what we call semi-conservative. No, that's not a political statement. I know, our world's getting pretty divisive here. But DNA replication is semi-conservative. And in biology, what that means is that when the DNA is replicated, each strand becomes a template to make a daughter strand. Therefore, when you have replication, the new DNA is made up of an original parent strand and a daughter strand. Now, this also means that once the DNA has been replicated, there are now two copies of DNA, and each copy has a parent and a daughter strand. Let's use a thought experiment to imagine what's happening during DNA replication. Now, you've probably seen the double helical structure of DNA. Imagine a ladder. You've got the rungs in the ladder and you have the outside holding those rungs together. Take that ladder and twist it. That's the double helix. Now, the difference between DNA and these rungs of the ladder is that the DNA, the two strands, are held together by these weak chemical bonds. And if you go way back to your, to your chemistry sessions, it's held together by hydrogen bonds the same type of chemical bond that makes water liquid. These weak bonds make it easy for the cell, or at least the machinery of DNA replication, to pull those two strands apart. And when you pull them apart, you hold them apart, 
And then you have another set of proteins come in and they copy each strand. So when you pull it apart, that's your parent strand. And when you copy that information and make another strand right next to it, that's your daughter strand. And you continually pull your DNA apart, creating two new strands of DNA. Now we've known about this basic principle of DNA replication, but as I said, there's about nine proteins involved and there are different types of DNA polymerase molecules. Now DNA polymerase, poly means many, ACE means it's an enzyme, DNA polymerase makes DNA. Now for that DNA to be replicated, we're gonna get a little bit more complicated here, several proteins coordinate their activity to separate the two strands. So when you start pulling that DNA apart, guess what? It's proteins that are pulling apart, keeping it from coming back together. And then of course, DNA polymerase is another protein that begins to copy the DNA. Now DNA polymerase, this is a large protein enzyme and it just adds nucleotides together, copying the DNA. And if our cells are working correctly, DNA replication begins when a cell receives a signal and enters, wait a second, S phase of interphase. So let's just recall the cell cycle really quickly. You've got interphase, the cell is growing, dividing its DNA, and you have the mitotic phase where the cell is actually dividing. So for a cell to replicate its DNA, it has to receive a signal. And then when it receives the signal, it enters what's called the S phase. And that's where your DNA is replicated. S phase actually stands for synthesis. Now you might be wondering, you know, how does our DNA replication, how does it know where to begin? Because your DNA molecules are very long. And how do you replicate it so quickly? Well, our DNA contains sequences of what's called non-coding base pairs. Non-coding means it doesn't code for a product like an RNA or a protein. So we call these non-coding base pairs. But these particular ones are called the origin of replication, and they allow part of the DNA replication machinery to bind to that specific sequence of DNA and begin to unwind the DNA, forming a fork that you can have the DNA polymerase go down and copy your DNA, eventually forming your two daughter strands. Now, let's add another layer of complexity. And this next thing I'm gonna talk about is actually really important because it has huge implications for us. Here it goes, and to understand it, we need a little information on the structure of DNA. Remember, it's a double helix, and it's held together by the hydrogen bonds between your nucleotide bases. The other thing that's important is that DNA also has directionality. It's got a five prime end and a three prime end. Now, not to get confusing here, but basically the three prime end and the five prime end give this molecule directionality. The five prime end is up there on the phosphate group and the three prime end is down on the sugar. What's important here is that a DNA polymerase the protein complex that grows your DNA by adding nucleotides on it can only grow your DNA in one direction. And it does this by adding nucleotides to the three prime end. 
So to remember what a nucleotide looks like, there's a five carbon sugar, looks like a pyramid kind of, and attached to that sugar is a phosphate group and a nucleotide. And the phosphate group, that's your five prime end, and down there at the sugar, that is your three prime end. And those numbers, three and five, are the names of the specific carbons in the sugar. So that five carbon sugar has a one, two, three, four, and five. And to separate those carbons from the carbon in your base, your nitrogenous base, we give them the prime designation. So the five prime carbon is up there near the phosphate group. The three prime is down there on the sugar itself. And remember, the DNA polymerase can only add nucleotides to the three prime carbon. Also, keep in mind, as we pull apart our DNA and these DNA polymerases begin making these strands, you know, copying your DNA, okay, they go in both directions. They go in, a, you open it up and imagine a bubble and that bubble elongates as those DNA polymerases go in opposite directions. So you can imagine this poses some problems. Well, there's a little bit more detail here about how DNA is replicated and repaired, but there are several things I'd like to point out here. First, recall that our DNA is also linear DNA. The ends are chopped off. It's not circular like in bacterium. Our ends are not connected. So the big problem here is that when your DNA polymerase is adding nucleotides to the three prime end, well, you can replicate that all the way to the end of that particular strand. But the other parent strand running in the opposite direction doesn't get replicated all the way to the end. So what this means is that each time our DNA is replicated, part of it is lost, which is different than a bacteria. Because if you have circular DNA, all your DNA gets replicated. Why, why would you do this? Why would you have linear DNA that every time you replicated it, it got shorter? So two questions here. Why do this? What's the evolutionary advantage with linear DNA? And two, how do you get around that? We can go back to the 1940s to get inspiration from Barbara McClintock's work. One of the things that she discovered was telomeres. So here's our connections. Cancer and immortality and the role of telomeres in the eukaryotic DNA. Wait, linear DNA not getting replicated? What in the world does that have to do with cancer and immortality? Let's take a closer look. DNA in prokaryotes and eukaryotes, it might be similar. We know we still replicate it pretty much the same way it's made up of the same nucleotides. The codons are all the same, but there's a difference. And I just said that. In prokaryotes, it's circular DNA, whereas in DNA, the chromosomes are linear. And because that DNA is linear, it doesn't get replicated all the way. So every time one of your cells of your body, called a somatic cell, that's a, soma means body, every time a skin cell replicates, it loses some DNA. It gets shorter every single generation. Not in generations of like you and your offspring, but in generations of cells living in you. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, 
What in the world is the advantage of that? Why would you have your DNA get shortened after every replication? Because the logical consequence of this, that puts a finite number of replications on your somatic cells unless you do something to restore that lost DNA. Now we can start to understand this when we look at the cell cycle and the consequence of being a multicellular organism. The price we pay is cancer. Remember, we have 20 trillion cells, maybe 30 trillion. Every one of those cells is under tight control. When do you grow? When do you divide? When do you die? All of that is controlled. What genes you express and when. Cancer, cancer cells escape that cell cycle. They escape the controls of our body. And when they do that, they begin to replicate and grow uncontrollably. That's the connection. Think about it. If cancer is an uncontrollable growth of cells and you have linear DNA, then that means your cells have a limited number of replications. That means if a cell becomes cancerous, that cell will undergo a certain amount of replications and then it will die. Now, now I know that some of you are already going, wait, there has got to be more to this story. And you are absolutely right. Because remember, it's cancer and immortality and the roles of telomeres. In our somatic cells, you see, to avoid the loss of DNA from replication of our linear chromosomes, we have these non-coding segments of DNA called telomeres at the end of the chromosomes. Once again, there's that word non-coding, which means that those sequences of DNA, they don't code for proteins or RNA. So it's the telomeres, they shorten after each round of replication. We also think that the telomeres may be important to prevent the chromosomes from fusing together and rearranging themselves. That's a type of mutation we often see in cancer and those cells can't repair that type of damage. So the shortening of telomeres is part of the aging process. We call that senescence because my cells have a limited number of replications and that, unfortunately, places a limit on how old we can grow because eventually what's gonna happen is that we'll run out of telomeres, our cells will continue to replicate and they will become damaged and die. And in most cells, if the telomeres become damaged or too short, that cell can then commit apoptosis. But here's an interesting observation. Children are born at age zero. Even though I waited 44 years to have my first kid, she wasn't born old. And people that have kids when they're born young, their children aren't born any younger than mine. They are all born at age zero. How does that work? When germ cells that form our gametes, they have an enzyme turned on called telomerase, telomere ace. There's that ace, there's that enzyme again. And because of telomerase, what it does is it adds telomeres onto our gametes and basically resets the clock to zero for each generation, no matter how old the parents are. Children are always born the same age. But here's the catch. 
As our cells differentiate into our various somatic cells, like skin cells, liver cells, muscle cells, whatever, all 200 of them, as our cells differentiate, the genes that make telomerase get turned off. Once again, placing a finite age on us. Now, earlier I said that if a cell becomes cancerous, because of our linear DNA, it has a limited number of growths. But as you know, many people sadly die from cancer. It's as if those cancer cells are immortal. How do they keep replicating over and over and over again? You might have already guessed the answer. Cancer cells have mutations. And one of the mutations in those cancer cells is that the gene to make telomerase gets turned on. So every time a cancer cell replicates, or at least one that's going to become malignant, if it's going to continually grow and divide, one of the mutations turns telomerase on. So every single time that cancer cell divides, its clock is reset to zero and cancer cells become immortal. And in fact, there's a book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Henrietta Lacks was a black woman who had cancer back in the 1950s. They harvested her cells without her permission, unfortunately. But there are today more cells of the HeLa line, HeLa for Henrietta Lacks line. Hundreds, thousands of pounds of these cells used in research. And those cells are basically immortal. Those cancer cells with that mutation, they can basically go through an unlimited rounds of replication without showing those signs of aging. So there's some of those connections between your telomeres, your telomerase, cancer, and immortality. You and I are mortal, but cancer cells are technically immortal, except that they die when you die. So the question becomes, is there a way to reset the clock in our cells back to a younger state. And in fact, a lot of research is being done now about resetting biological clocks. Now, it's unlikely that we will ever become immortal, but we can definitely extend the range or our lifespan. In fact, uh, Priest Sinclair has a podcast called Lifespan. You guys should check it out. It's really good. And there's one other thing I'd like to talk about here too. We grow old and die. We senesce. Other organisms also grow old and die, but they do it differently than us. And one thing I like to remind everybody is that we can often turn to the natural world. We can look at plants and animals and bacteria and yeast to learn about ourselves and make improvements for ourselves as well. And today, let's talk about lobsters. You know, like rock lobster. I used to have a pet named rock lobster. Many of you might like to eat lobsters. I don't really care to eat lobster, but I, they're pretty good. But here's the thing. Lobsters can live to be about 75 years old. And very interestingly, throughout their life, they maintain basically the same rates of activity and reproductive success, even though they continually grow and, they're, and they add years, up to 75 of them, and we've discovered lobsters that are nearly 100 years old, and they have the body. They're bigger, but they basically have a body that's as healthy as a 20-year-old lobster. Imagine that for a second. 
a hundred year old human that looks like a 20 year old human in almost every single way, except they would just be larger. And you're going, how did they do that? And it turns out that these lobsters, they don't die of old age like a human does. Their cells remain youthful. They die when they become too large to shed their exoskeleton. But it turns out that lobsters have active telomerase in their somatic cells. So every time their cells replicate, and of course, you can imagine the question I want to ask, can we do that in humans? And secondly, if the telomerase is turned on in these lobsters, which means every time their cells replicate, the clock is reset, was there other defenses against cancer? And if they have good defenses against cancer, even though their cells are immortal, how do they stop themselves from getting it? And can we apply that to humans? So this just goes to show that it is often very important to study other animals in medicine, not just limit our studies to humans. So that about does it for the very simplistic view of DNA replication. But the important thing here is that it's semi-conservative and because it's semi-conservative and the DNA polymerase can only add nucleotides to one growing strand, the three prime end, with our linear DNA that puts a limit on the number of DNA replications you can have in our somatic cells. And we think that that's a defense against cancer and that we have telomerase to reset the clock in our germ cells, you know, our sperm and our egg, and that there are animals out there like the lobster that have active telomerase and their cells reset their clock every time they divide. Something very different from us. Very interesting stuff to me. Now, as we move on about how genes work, now we have an idea of DNA replication, let's talk about the genetic code. Now, in 2008, you know, I, I joined my friends on a trip to Panama, and the goal was to look for rare reptiles and amphibians in a remote cloud forest. And in fact, you could actually see the Pacific and the Caribbean on clear days. Except it was a cloud forest, so it was often cloudy. Now, I was brought along as a group's photographer, so they wanted me to take photos of everything that we saw. And we would go out at dusk. At the start of each evening, you know, we would gather our lights, our Slim Jims and other snacks for the long night, and we would set out at dusk. And uh, I'm going through this primal cloud forest, and I could hear the sounds of the night. And I photographed almost every animal I saw, including things like a helmeted iguana and various types of anoles. By the end of the trip, I had photographed hundreds of species of animals. And in the years since, I've returned to the tropics nearly a dozen times with more or less the same group of friends, armed with my camera, some very bright lights, a few flashes, and some Slim Jims. I was taking pictures of animals that were probably even new to science. In fact, I knew some of them were new to science. Now, you might be wondering, What's the connection to this trips and the genetic code? Well, let me continue. Based on our best estimates, there is somewhere between two and 10 million species 
And that's only 1% of all the species that have ever lived on this planet. To me, the diversity of our world is remarkable, especially when you consider the entirety of Earth's diversity, and through time as well, is coded by just four letters, A, T, C, and G, adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. These four letters, they form three-letter words called a codon. And a codon codes for an amino acid. And amino acids, of course, are the building blocks of proteins. The language of life is written in the sequence of nucleotides, just like the letters form the words in a book. And even more impressively, those same letters forming the same words are the same in every living organism on this planet from bacteria to humans and every single living organism for the past billions of years. Now, some people consider cracking the genetic code to be one of the greatest triumphs in science of the 20th century. In February 1953, Watson and Crick proclaimed that they discovered the secret to life at their local bar. It's called the Eagle Pub. What they determined was the tertiary structure of DNA. You know that is the double helix. Let's not forget that they did figure this out by using the work of other people, namely Rosalind Franklin and some of her graduate students. And just to be clear, Watson and Crick didn't actually discover DNA. They used a few pilfered X-ray crystallography from Rosalind Franklin, but it was really a, a Swiss chemist named Frederick Meister that discovered DNA in 1869. He just didn't know what it looked like. And that's what Watson and Crick figured out was that DNA is a double helical structure. In reality, the secret of life that they really sought is the genetic code. That's the unique sequences of DNA that codes for proteins. Once they discovered the, the structure of DNA in the 1950s, 1953, it took nearly a decade to crack that genetic code. But by the end of the 1960s, it was known that three nucleotides form codons, which code for those amino acids. In nature, there's hundreds of amino acids, but only about 20 or so are used by every single living organism on this planet to make millions of proteins and protein variants. And in fact, AlphaFold, as I mentioned last year, figured out the three-dimensional structure of nearly 500 million proteins. And let's put this into perspective. There are only four nucleotides used to code for 20 amino acids. And what this means is that you can't use just one nucleotide to code for a single amino acid. You couldn't even use two nucleotides because that would only code for 16 amino acids. However, using three nucleotides allows you to code for 20 amino acids. Think about it this way. If you've got three nucleotides forming a codon, that means you've got three nucleotides in a row, and at each position of that codon, first, middle, and last, you have four possibilities 
Well, you have four by four by four, which equals 64. So the iteration here, you can start to see this. If I've got adenine, 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 that's one codon. Adenine, adenine, thymine, that's two. Adenine, adenine, cytosine, adenine, adenine, guanine. That's four different codons without even changing the first two nucleotides of your codon. So there's basically 64 combinations of nucleotides. Now it turns out that only 61 codons code for amino acids. There's three that what they call a stop codon. And basically stop codons, they tell your, your, your cells to stop making a protein. It's called stopping translation. And translation is when you, you take the information in your RNA and you make your, your sequence of amino acids from that. Now, unlike stop codons, there's also a start codon, but a start codon also codes for an amino acid. Although there are 61 codons, giving you on average three codons per amino acid, it doesn't quite work out that way. There's a range from some amino acids only have one codon, like methionine, and there are six codons for serine. But on average, it's about you know three codons per amino acid. Like I said, there's some variation. But this average of three codons per amino acid sets up some interesting properties of the genetic code. And the first one is, it's redundant. What that means is, there's often more codons than there are amino acids. You can have a mutation in a codon and still code for the amino acid, the same amino acid. You could take the amino acid glycine, G, G. As long as those first two nucleotides in the codon are G and G, you get glycine. And in fact, that third position can be thymine, cytosine, adenine, guanine. It's going to code for the same amino acid. So there's redundancy built into the genetic code, which means that there are mutations that can be completely silent because if you change the third nucleotide, you do not change the amino acid. However, the genetic code is also unambiguous. Here's what that means. The same codon will always code for the same amino acid. So going back to glycine, if you've got GG, doesn't matter what the third position of your nucleotide is, GGG, GGC, GGT, GGA, all of those, you're always in every single living organism you're gonna code for glycine. That is unambiguous. And I just set up a third important characteristic of our genetic code, and that is it's nearly universal. Meaning, if I take a codon to make glycine, it's gonna make glycine in every single organism, from a bacteria to a human to a plant. The genetic code is nearly universal. Let's take that a step further. If I have a gene, a gene to make insulin in a human, and I cut that gene out, I could put it in a lizard. It will still make the exact same insulin. I could put it in a plant. Guess what? It'll make insulin. I could put it into a bacteria like E. coli. Guess what that bacteria is going to make? Insulin. 
and in fact, our very first genetically modified organism used in medicine was E. coli to make insulin to treat diabetes. And we can do that because of the near universality of the genetic code. I know, I said nearly universal. There are bacteria, there's wily bacteria. To evade viral infections, they've actually modified parts of their genetic code to be a little different. So that way, whenever a virus attacks them and they try to like take over the DNA or the RNA of the, of the bacteria, they try to take it over, it doesn't work. The directions are all wrong. But that is a derived condition. It evolved from this universal genetic code used by basically every living thing on this planet, which of course is incredibly strong support for a universal common ancestor. And from that universal common ancestor, life has evolved into a myriad of different life forms. Just think of the diversity in our world. And you might be going, how in the world did we get so much genetic variability? How do we have elephants and birds and bacteria and flowers and fungus? Well, the answer to that are mutations, which is our next major topic here. Mutations are the ultimate source of variation. You've got blonde hair, blue eyes, that's a mutation. You have O blood, that's a mutation. There are lots of mutations and that is a source of variation. And it goes back to like Darwin on his journey and he's on the Beagle in the 1830s where he spent three and a half years, you know, in South America, he tried to get off the boat as much as he could. Something about getting seasick. But he was collecting lots of specimens, sending them back to England. And a key observation he made was that not every individual looks the same. We see this in our everyday lives. And he realized that natural selection acts on these variations in individuals. The ones that have a variation that allows them to survive in their environment and reproduce, those traits are passed on. And over time, these populations evolve. And in some of my own personal journeys, I kind of thought about Darwin in 2009, like 175 years after Darwin. I found myself deep in the Andes Mountains, and I was once again wandering in the dark, taking pictures. One night, I walked up a small stream, and I took photos of these really colorful tree frogs called Hypsiboa picturatus. Hmm, pictures, right? After a few hours, you know, I, I collected several of them, put them on a stick, lined them up, and took their picture. One of my favorite photos of all time, even if it was a nature fake. But what I noticed, like Darwin, is that each individual was different. Now, in Darwin's time, no one knew the source of variation in a population. Today, we know that is caused by mutations. They are the ultimate source of variation. So in 3.7, 4 billion years, there have been enough mutations to allow for the evolution of all diversity that has ever existed on Earth. From the simplest of bacteria eating a rock, yeah, there are bacteria that eat rocks, to the most complex animals like a human or a dog. And at its broadest definition, a mutation is any change to the sequence of DNA. And there are some people out there that will argue that 
these random mutations could in no way lead to the diverse world that we see today. However, what they don't understand is how mutations work. And then going back to Barbara McClintock, the difference between you and a snail is more about timing of genes. And we also have more genes than a snail. Maybe sometimes. Frogs actually have more genes than we do. What's going on here? Here's a little more history for you. Mutations were first discovered by Morgan, you know, Thomas Morgan, almost 100 years ago when he was studying fruit flies because he too was interested in the genetics of inheritance. And it started when he found this fruit fly with a white eye rather than the normal red eye. Now it took him several years of breeding like thousands of these small flies to make this discovery again. And once he discovered mutations, of course, this supported Darwin's theory of evolution because evolution requires variation in a population. Mutations was the source of variation for natural selection to act on. Now, mutations, they're responsible for every variation you see, including humans. And I've already said this, skin color, hair color, hair type, blood type, genetic diseases, not having genetic diseases. In contrast, you know, some mutations have even had benefits. Some people have mutations that allow them to live a lot longer, not get dementia, not develop Alzheimer's disease, not have vascular disease. Some people have mutations that allow them to run very fast, have an excellent memory, or play an instrument well. Now, it's commonly believed that mutations are almost always bad. And indeed, many mutations are. And a paper that just came out this year suggests that even though silent mutations aren't so silent, which we have to figure something out here, it has to do with epigenetics, which we'll get to that later, but they're not as silent as we thought they were. In fact, they might even be slightly bad. But some mutations are good. Let's take a closer look at the various types of mutations. The first that I want to talk about is a silent mutation. And I know, I just said, silent mutations are not always silent mutations because of their effects on epigenetic inheritance. Wow, the world is always more complicated than we thought. But historically, a genetic mutation that would be silent is go back to our, our codons and the redundancy in the genetic code. Think glycine, GG. First two codons, GG, you always get glycine. Doesn't matter that third position. So if you have a mutation that goes from GGG to GGC, that's a mutation. It was historically called, a, or is commonly called a silent mutation because it does not change the amino acid. But it might change how that gene is expressed. More on that later. But the point here is that silent mutations usually don't have a large effect or no effect when they happen. However, some types of small mutations can have a really big effect, like rendering the entire protein useless. And those include insertions and deletions. So like their name suggests, if you have an insertion, you're adding a nucleotide to your code, okay? And a deletion removes one. These types of mutations can be problematic. Here's why. It changes what's called your reading frame. 
So imagine you're reading a sentence. The cat chases the ball. Wait, shouldn't I say the dog chases the ball? And you get T-H-E space D-O-G. Now imagine you remove one letter and you remove an E from the. T-H, you remove the E, you move the dog over and you get T-H dog. Doesn't make as much sense. And in fact, everything downstream of that mutation no longer makes sense. So insertions and deletions are often called a knockout mutation because when you get them, the gene, the, the gene no longer makes a functional protein. It doesn't work anymore. And if you knock out a very important protein like DNA polymerase, that's not going to go anywhere. The specific example I use in the book is I like to eat pizza. And if you remove the first letter I, it reads something like, L Iket O Atip Itza. Or if I inserted another letter randomly like Z, the sentence would be like Z Ilik et Eo Tipitza A. In both cases, all the words downstream of the insertion or deletion, they don't make any sense anymore. And the same goes with making a gene. All the codons get changed. And in other cases, you can have an insertion or a deletion or another mutation, just a single point mutation, that can cause what is known as a premature stop codon. So AUG says stop. I know you, that's uracil, that's RNA. But a stop codon, if you prematurely get that, you stop making the protein. And a great example of a premature stop codon is O blood. O blood is a mutated version of an A. It has a premature stop codon, so you start making an A antigen, but it stops after about 261 nucleotides, and that's it. So that's why we say O blood doesn't have the antigen. It has part of it, but not enough for our body to really recognize it. Another example is Mendel's pea flowers, the purple and the white alleles. The white allele is also caused by a premature stop codon so that those plants, they can't make the pigment anthocyanin that makes them purple. And that's just one example of how these mutations, in this case, are creating different versions of a genes called alleles. And those different alleles, you know, they can be beneficial, they can be neutral, they could be good, they could be good or bad depending on the environment. So they can change. But that is just one small way that we build up genetic variability in a population for evolution to act. Going back to one of the criticisms about evolution when people say, hey, you know, there's just not enough time for the number of mutations to occur to create the diversity we see today. Well, that's because they're missing one important type of mutation. Their basic idea of a mutation is a random point mutation you know, insertion, deletion, or, or changing something. But there are other types of mutations that are larger. One is called a gene duplication. And this happens a lot in eukaryotes. Genes get duplicated. If you remember, we have this thing called crossing over during prophase one. So how we generate genetic diversity during meiosis. Well, sometimes that crossing over doesn't go both ways. It, it goes one way. And so you end up with a chromosome that has two copies of a gene. And now you've got two copies of the gene. You have more genetic material. Both of them can mutate, 
creating additional genetic diversity. And this is really important because gene duplication leads to not only more genetic material to work with, it leads to something called gene families. Here's a great example. You know, a few years ago, I, I got my first dog. Well, I had dogs as a kid, but my first dog is an adult. And he was my buddy. And I'm at the bar and my wife walks in with my dog and he looks at me. I hadn't seen him all day and he, he doesn't really do anything. He gets up closer to me, smells me. I guess I have a unique odor for my dog. And he just loses it. I mean, he is so happy and gets excited. I realized at that moment how important smell is for dogs. Here's the connection of gene duplications. The ancestors to mammals were mostly nocturnal, living at night under the feet of dinosaurs. Well, if you're at night and you're active, you need to have a very good sense of smell. The evolution of early mammals, there were gene duplications over a thousand times that led to increased olfaction basically a better sense of smell. Now on humans, we have all those same genes that dogs have for detecting odors, but about half of them have mutated. They're now called pseudogenes. So we have a sense of smell, but nothing as good as a dog's. Instead, we also have additional proteins in our eyes to detect more color than a dog. Because the ability to see color was much more important in our ancestors. Because you have to identify, is that a red fruit, a green fruit, or a blue fruit? Dogs are carnivores, but they still maintain their excellent sense of smell, whereas we've given up some of that in turn for sense of eye color. And the point here is that these gene duplications have led to gene families. We can have even bigger mutations. You can replicate entire chromosomes. You can rearrange chromosomes as long as you keep all the genes and their regulatory genes together. You can replicate entire genomes. When it comes to mutations, you can start with simple point mutations. You can have gene duplication. You can have chromosomal rearrangement, duplication of chromosomes, and duplication of your entire genome. And every time you do this, you create additional genetic diversity and material for evolution to work with. And that is how we can have this incredible diversity that we see in the world today because of these larger mutations. Okay, well, this is a good place to stop in my introduction to how genes work. I know I really haven't gotten too much into how genes work yet, but I did cover how DNA is replicated, which has a lot of implications for both aging and cancer. I talked about the universality of the genetic code and ended on a discussion of mutations and how mutations lead to genetic variability that, of course, natural selection can 